0: Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, first thing to do is apologise, because this podcast should have been out in February and it's now March. I've just been so busy with the travelling and the teaching that today's the first day I've had to sit down and uh, and record it. It's been written for a while, but this is the first time I've had to sit down and record it, so uh, apologies for that. And I think the January one was out early in January too, so you have, you have had to wait a while. Um, and I appreciate your patience, but this is a, this is a big podcast, this. So hopefully that's some consolation, you know. You have to wait a while, but this is a meaty one. It's a big one. Um, <laughs> oh, the, and also, speaking of podcasts, 10 years. It's been 10 years of podcasting for me. Uh, this year, I think October sees the decade of podcasts, which I think is quite an achievement. So I want to mark that in a way that I think you'll like. And to enable me to do that, I need to know what your top 10 favorite podcasts have been. So you can, not necessarily your top 10 either, you can send me an email with your favourite or your favourite 3, 4, 5, whatever, up to 10. So that's um, to ian, I-A-I-N, at ian, I-A-I-N, Abernethy, dot com so ian at com uh, if you go to the website as well of course you can um, see uh, there's a it by the contact form there as well if you wish um, but if you could get me th- that to me i'd really appreciate it thanks to all those who have i've already written back to everyone who's done it personally to thank them but you know here's a second wave of thanks fire the podcast uh, if you haven't done it and i mean you i mean you who's listening right now okay you if you haven't done it sort it out <laughs> right right okay that's the trade this is free podcast right all this free information like love it loathe it agree with it or disagree with it you can't deny there's been a lot of it <laughs> so so all i want you to do is uh, just drop me an email drop me an email and then i'll we'll, we'll call it quits if you can give me the your your top 10 or top three or top four or whatever it happens to be uh the other bit of news uh, again like that one slightly secret but uh uh, I'm making an app. Um, I've been in discussions and we've had a chat. And um, a gentleman uh, that I've met through the seminars uh, has already designed one, which I think will fit our needs. So we're going to do a special Ian Abernethy version of the app which will give you lots of katabunkai, access to exclusive videos, uh, weekly updates and stuff. So we're busy working away on that. I think that you'll like it. I think it'll be something that will appeal. Um, so <laughs> so I must say watch this space, but you're listening. So listen this space, listen to this. I, I, um, keep an eye out okay, and an ear out uh, for extra information on that as, uh, as we go forwards. Um, okay the subject of this month's podcast is banned techniques the techniques that you know aren't allowed in sport are these super dangerous techniques how effective are they going to be what roles do they have will these super techniques enable you to defeat a trained martial artist who fights to the rules these are the kind of discussions we often see on various kind of you know tv even internet forums and things so i thought i'd weigh in with my view on band techniques uh, one thing just to note is because we are talking about band techniques and their application in real-world violence it's a relatively graphic podcast that doesn't mean there's lots of swearing and anything like that in it you know it's still in terms of language used it's still uh, perfectly acceptable um PG podcast but you if uh, you've got youngsters listening you know when we're talking about biting and gouging and all that kind of stuff it may not be suitable uh, suitable uh, subject matter so uh, parental discretion is advised okay um okay um thanks for listening so far let's get into the main meat of this month's podcast with our discussion on uh, band techniques In this edition of the podcast I'd like to look at the idea of no-rules fighting as a false representation of self-protection. And I'd also like to address the idea that some skills and attributes developed by fighting within a rule-bound context are immediately rendered ineffective or moot when moved to a no-rules context. Um, Fighting there being distinct from self-protection. but. Okay, so this is a topic I've wanted to cover for a while, as I have personally feel there's many myths and illogical statements presented as accepted truth within the various subsections of the martial arts. It's a nuanced topic, and my experience has been that black-and-white thinking combined with martial tribalism can sometimes make such discussions difficult because the nuanced truth of the middle ground is not satisfying for some. Some want wholesale vindication of what they do and wholesale vilification of what others do. And if that's what you're hoping for from this podcast, then you know you're going to be disappointed. So, I'm a traditional martial artist who is both uh, self-defense focused and entirely non-sporting. But I do admire the sporting side of the martial arts, greatly. However, I also feel that sporting solutions don't cut it when applied to the problems of criminal violence. When I point out the problems of applying sporting methods in a context that has a differing nature and objective, I had found that some simplify that as me saying sport bad. Uh, when I also point out the inherent strengths of a sporting approach, both on its own terms and for attribute development, as I did in the case for combat sports podcast, then this confuses people who feel that's inconsistent with the sport bad message that I mistakenly think I've put forward. As I say, these are nuanced issues and it's a nuanced view I hope to effectively articulate in this podcast. So I'm not putting forward an anti-sport or pro-sport view. Uh, what I hope to put forward is an effective argument against some of the mistaking positions taken on both sides of this this argument i mean One of the common criticisms of sporting martial arts is they get you conditioned to fighting the uh, fighting with rules and in a street fight you know I'm really not keen on that term, but they still say look in a street fight, there are no rules It's an argument frequently made by both traditional and reality based martial artists. And as someone who falls into both those camps, you may expect me to follow the party line and agree, but I don't. I think it's a bad argument for many reasons. I mean, one reason this argument is bad, agree or disagree, is that it's entirely mute when you accept that a street fight is not the same as physical self-protection. Street fighting is illegal and stupid, and the physical aspect of true self-protection is just one small part of it. Now, I'm not going to go into more detail on this because these are topics we've covered in depth in the recent Think Like a Criminal podcast and the Problems with Street Fighting podcast. So if you've not, list, uh, not, if you've not yet listened to those, they're still on iTunes and um So there's a widespread and very problematic failure to grasp the basic difference, but now's not the time to revisit that particular issue. What I want to do here is isolate the rules themselves and the techniques that they ban and explore if as is often asserted, that these bun techniques do indeed constitute a set of hyper-effective techniques that are both hyper-effective in self-protection and which will be devastating when used against those who, because of their sport training, are arguably conditioned to overlook them. There are obviously loads of combat sports and those... Sports have lots of organisations within them, and a lot of them all have different rule sets. So for the practicalities of this discussion, I think we should focus on a fairly generic set of MMA rules. Um, the reason I think that's a good idea is because MMA is generally thought to have the least restrictive rule set, because it allows both striking and grappling and at full contact. Um, MMA is also frequently put forward as being you know, as real as it gets. Um, so what follows is a fairly generic list of prohibited actions from MMA rules. And I want to discuss each one in term. And as I see it, there are two main reasons why uh, an act or a technique will be prohibited. Uh, the first reason is because such a method is deemed uh, too dangerous. And it's these methods that we will be mainly focusing on as part of our discussion. Because they are the ones put forward as the pivotal difference between sport fighting and real fighting. The second reason techniques are banned is for the purity or reputation of the sport in question. So to give examples, you know, you can't sweep in taekwondo competitions because it will mess up the kicking that is the primary method used in that sport. It's for the exact same reason that the frown on excessive clinching in boxing or ban striking from judo. Almost all combat sports also have rules about refusing to actively engage in the fight because they want a fight to actually take place and to avoid someone scoring and then running around the mat or ring cage or whatever till the time runs out. You know, mo- Most sports also have rules prohibiting the use of bad language, unsportsmanlike behaviour etc. Uh, as we can see these rules are not really about safety but they're instead trying to sculpt the right kind of fight. For the purposes of this discussion, the second set of prohibited actions are less relevant. Okay, so let's discuss uh, the prohibited actions under general MMA rules. What we are seeking to gain is a list of techniques that are banned from uh, such events because they are deemed to be too dangerous. We can then go on to explore how effective and relevant they actually are to self-protection and so on. So, So here we go. So first thing that's prohibited, holding or grabbing the fence. So although there's a risk of dislocated fingers if a takedown was attempted to a person who had an awkward grip on a fence, this is primarily a rule to ensure the flow of the fight. You know, in the real world, holding onto a chain link fence to prevent takedowns is hardly an everyday event. Next one, holding the opponent's shorts or gloves. Um, You can, not of course, hold your own shorts, you just can't hold your opponent's. Now, so in most MMA events, the reason you can hold your own shorts is because it can be an effective way to prevent the application of certain locks. However, you may not grip the opponent's gloves or shorts. In reality, you can grip your enemy's clothing, and they can grip yours. So there's a difference here. However, it's not a huge safety issue. And I've never heard anyone make the argument that being able to hold short is the definitive way to win fights. Or as pointed to that, there's been an inherent deficiency in MMA. So I think we can put that one to one side. Next prohibited action is butting with the head. So this is the first prohibited action primarily on the basis of safety. Headbutts can do damage and are applicable when clinched or close to your opponent. So we'll come back to that one and we'll discuss that in more depth later. Uh, Next prohibited action is biting or spitting at an opponent. Obviously this is for safety and hygiene so we'll add biting and spitting to the list of techniques we'll discuss in more depth. Hair pulling. So pulling the hair is commonplace in self-protection especially female on female violence so we'll look at that one too. Uh, Fish hooking is prohibited. So that's another safety and hygiene compromise so we'll add that one to the list. Uh, intentionally placing the finger into any orifice or any cut or laceration on an opponent. So, safety and hygiene again, so we'll come back to discuss that one in more detail as well. Uh, Eye gouges of any kind are banned, and obviously they're banned on safety grounds. Uh, Groin attacks of any kind. So again, as with eye gouges, groin attacks are obviously banned for safety grounds. Downward pointing elbow strikes. So this is an interesting one, because we're not just talking about dropping elbows to the base of the spine or neck, because... As we'll see, all strikes are banned to those areas. It's dropping elbows generally. Now, personally, I struggle to see why this angle should be deemed more dangerous than horizontal or whipping elbows. Um, but according to Joe Rogan, um, the reason this was banned was because some person at the Athletic Commission had seen a demonstration where this person had broke a loads of ice with a dropping elbow. So the guy had seen that and then wrongly assumed that if such methods could break so much ice, then they're obviously way too dangerous to be used in sport. If I remember right, Joe said this when commenting on an event where a person was disqualified for the use of these elbows while on the floor. Um, so his opponent was face up underneath him and he did a dropping elbow down onto the opponent. Um, but I personally think this is, from the sounds of it, it's banned in error. And I see no reason to single out dropping elbows has been more dangerous than their counterparts from any other angle. So next thing we've got that's banned is small joint manipulation. So this means bending of the, you know, twisting the fingers and the toes. And so that's obviously a safety banning, and we'll discuss that later. Uh, strikes to the spine or the back of the head are prohibited, and as just mentioned a few moments ago, these targets are banned from all strikes You know, on the grounds of safety. Heel kicks to the kidney. So as I understand this, this uh, refers to opening up your guard while you're fighting on the ground from your back, and bringing your heel down onto your opponent's kidneys. Um, so you know the opponents between your legs, you open the legs and then kick down with your own leg onto the opponent's kidneys from the back. And you see quite a bit of this in the early days of MMA. But it's definitely not a fight ender on its own though, and although it can be tricky to defend, there's perhaps more to do with getting the recipient to move so he can open things up and take advantage. You know, and it's worth remembering that a full power roundhouse kick to the kidneys while standing is not against the rules. So while the method is banned on safety grounds, uh, there's no great consistency here, and the technique is far from being overtly dangerous, especially if you think that all other kicks and punches are allowed the same area. And so I'm therefore, you know, happy to leave this one on the off the list, you know, really. But we'll, we'll come back to that. So what? Um, throat strikes of any kind, including without limitation, grabbing the trachea. So that's obviously banned on the legitimate safety grounds. Uh, clawing, pinching, at the twisting the flesh, grabbing the clavicle. Uh, these would seem to be banned for safety, so we'll discuss them later. Uh, kicking the head of a grounded opponent, or the soccer kick, so that's potentially fatal, so it's quite rightly banned, so we'll we'll come back to discuss that one. Uh, kneeing the head of a grounded opponent, again attacking the head of a person on the ground is obviously dangerous and hence legitimately banned, uh, as he's stomping on a ground fighter. So that's another peeped in action. Uh, smashed skulls and shattered rib cages are obviously what this rule aims to avoid, so we'll discuss that later too. Uh, Another thing that's banned is the use of abusive language in the fighting area. So while abusive language is commonplace in self-protection, and it can be an effective tool to intimidate, shock and gain compliance, curse words can't actually cause unconsciousness or injury on their own. Um, They're therefore mainly there to protect the reputation of the sport. There is a need to practice dealing with aggressive bad language as part of self-protection training though. If you're serious about realistic self-protection training it needs to be included otherwise the sanitised role play that results will bear little resemblance to the real world. Obviously this needs to be done in a professional and appropriate way and well away from juniors or anyone else who may overhear and take offence but it does need to be done. So there is a difference between sport and self-defence here but because we're talking about methods that are banned for safety specifically we won't add this one to our list. Now a similar thing happens with the next three prohibited acts, so uh, any unsportsmanlike conduct that causes injury to the opponent, attacking an opponent during a break, attacking an opponent who is under the care of the referee, Um, so all those are prohibited, and in the real world the enemy doesn't want a fair fight, so they will deliberately seek to attack you when you're distracted, so it's a difference, Uh, but it does not move us towards our list of techniques which are banned because they are deemed too dangerous, Uh, this is a tactic and beyond the scope of this immediate discussion. Also prohibited are avoiding contact, consistently dropping of the mouthpiece, faking injury, just being timid effectively. Um, so these are all ways of avoiding fighting. And of course, this is going to be banned from consensual sport fighting because you've agreed to fight, so you should fight. However, in self-protection, the violence is non-consensual, and you should do all you can to avoid fighting. And even if it does get physical, you don't want to fight, but instead you want to explosively and you know one way decide the action. So the next one we have is interference from a mixed martial artist's cornerman. So real situations frequently involve more than one person, and this is a massive difference between sport fighting and self-protection. And as we've discussed many times, one-on-one tactics don't cut it in an environment where there's often more than one. It's for this reason that things like seeking and maintaining a ground fight is a bad idea, because you can be winning the one-on-one ground fight and be stamped flat by others that you've got absolutely no control over. Even strangers can take a free shot if the mood takes them. And there was a fatality along those grounds in my locality not that long ago. Two guys end up on the ground and a stranger to both the men kicks one of them in the head and kills them. But once again, though, this doesn't really fit to the, the list we're attempting to develop. So the next one is throwing the opponent out of the ring or the caged area. So while throwing people onto something not designed for people to be safely throwing onto is obviously dangerous, it's a bit of a moot point for our purposes... In reality, you can't choose the surface you end up having to protect yourself on, and pretty much all of them are going to be harder than mats. Next one is disregard of the referee's instructions. Notice people are so keen to point out there's no referee in reality. But again, this isn't relevant to our discussion. Uh, spiking a, an opponent onto the canvas on their head or neck, like a pile driver. So it's obviously a dangerous technique, but one that it would require you know, a lot of strength. So we can add that one to our list, I guess. Uh, Attacking the opponent after the bell has sounded uh, or the end of the period of combat. Um, This prohibited action is safety based but not in terms of a technique deemed too dangerous so it's not one for our list. Um, There is again a difference here though because your smart criminal will want to attack when you're not ready. So again we see a difference between consensual and non-consensual violence. Anyway, from our examination of the rules we can list the following as being banned from sport on the grounds that they are too dangerous. And it is these methods that people point to when stating that sport fighting is deficient because of the fact that they omit these seemingly very effective methods from their skill set. Before we go on to discuss them, I want to emphasize once again that we're looking at the rules and the techniques they ban in isolation. In other podcasts, we've discussed that sport fighting is not a good fit for self-protection because it doesn't cover things like the actual nature of criminal violence, de-escalation, escape, law, multiple attackers, weapons, and so on. We've also discussed that sport, when judged on its own merits, has its own inherent value and has some advantages over the reality-based counterpart, such as an objective test of skill, competition, uh, the inescapable promotion of a healthy lifestyle, an honest assessment of ability, and so on. So I'm not going to restate all that again, and I would refer the listener to other podcasts to get how this specific look at rules fits in with the wider world of those issues. Okay, back to the list of the band... It seems to me that there are just 16 banned actions in MMA that are banned on pure safety grounds. And these 16 are uh, headbutting, biting or spitting at the opponent, hair pulling, fish hooking, intentionally placing a finger into any orifice or any cut or laceration of the opponent, eye gouging, groin attacks, small joint manipulation, strikes the spine or the back of the head, heel kicks to the kidneys throat strikes of any kind, including grabbing the trachea, clawing, pinching, twisting the flesh or grabbing the clavicle, kicking the head of a grounded opponent, kneeing the head of a grounded opponent, stomping on a grounded fighter, and pile drivers. So let's look at the effectiveness of each of these from the viewpoint of civilian self-defence in a theoretical no-rule street fight, which is, again, it's stupid and illegal, but it is something people discuss, you know, Um, if... You take the rules away, how does that affect the ability of those fighting within those rules to fight? So we'll look at that one from an intellectual viewpoint as well, but primarily from civilian self-defense. So the first one we've got then is headbutting. So there's no doubt that headbutting hurts, and it can be a very useful strike from a clinch. Do it right, i.e. get your body behind it and hit with the right part of your head, then you can get a knockout. So yes, it's useful, but it's hardly a devastating move, and it's less effective than many of the methods that are legal. So the second one, biting or spitting at the opponent. Now biting can be very useful. It's not likely to be a finisher on its own. But it can be very useful in creating space and movement. A much stronger assailant can be forced to move by a strong and aggressive bite. And that can create the space to flee or the space to strike. There was one girl who did a, a self-defense course with me. And uh, later on, you know, years after she'd done the course, she managed to avoid getting pulled into a car through biting one of her assailants. So while bites can be useful in self-protection, uh, they could be easily negated by a skilled fighter. Bites are therefore not a magic bullet that will enable you to uh, exploit this alleged gap in a trained fighter's skill set as a kind of MMA kryptonite. You know, bites aren't that effective. Uh, however, just because they have a limited value in that context does not mean they don't have value for the largely untrained when facing civilian violence. As for spitting, that causes no injury, but it can be a useful distraction. I'm not proud of it, but I can say that that's one I've personally used when I was younger. Spot on the person, they moved back and flinched, and that gave me the chance to land a solid shot. You know, and it's worth noting that spitting is tr- traditional too. Gichin Funakoshi, the father of modern karate no less, recommended spitting as a method to dis- distract people in his uh, master text, you know, Karate Do Kyohan. So it's obviously not highly effective because it doesn't cause pain, you can't knock someone out by spitting. Um, Once again, a perfectly legal right cross will be way more effective. So the third thing is uh, hair pulling. So, you know, stop it. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) So in my case, I'm immune to that one through a combination of iron head chi kung and male pattern baldness, uh, although it's mainly the male pattern baldness. But um, hair grabbing can work well. It can be used to control and locate the head and permit solid strikes. It can also be used to move the head and it can be painful too but all of that can be achieved in other ways of course Um, and it's not a huge vulnerability and it's not a fight ender on its own right. For self-protection purposes it's something we need to be aware of and be able to defend against so it does need to be included. It's still not a gaping hole in the skill set of a trained fighter though. Uh, Number four, fish hooking. So as long as tension is kept in the cheek during the pull and the fingers are removed when the head has moved it can work. There's a danger of getting your finger bit down on those should it all go wrong. Um, There's a tale of uh, Kayan uh, taking a judica to the floor with a combination of a fishhook and a hammer fist. Um, So he reached round, put his fingers at the corner of the judica's mouth, ripped the head round and hammer fisted him so the judica fell to the ground. And the judica was so impressed by this that he decided to take some lessons in karate from Kayan. So it's definitely workable and it's part of karate, but it's certainly not a primary method that is hyper-effective. Once again, the legal methods would eclipse this in terms of effectiveness and accessibility. So, uh, number five intentionally placing a finger into any orifice or any cut or laceration of an opponent. Now, that'll get people to move. You know, fingers in the nose can cause pain and get a person's head moving. It's not a finisher on its own, though, and even getting the fingers into the nose can prove difficult. Um, want to have in the toolkit, but still not a hyper effective method of devastation. I mean, and putting fingers into cuts can hurt, but you know, it's not going to do much. It's it, In the rules, that's primarily there to stop people opening cuts up so the fight is stopped on, on that basis. You, know, you make the cut worse by sticking your finger in it. Uh, but you can't end real situations in such a way. Uh, so number six, eye gouging of any kind. So I mean, the eye is stronger than most, suppose, and we instinctively protect it well. However, a good eye gouge can cause distress and pain and get people moving. It can remove the ability to see, and at least temporarily, and, and the will to fight. But we can't rely on either of those. Definitely a vulnerable area and an important consideration. So long as we're aware not to over-exaggerate the extent of that vulnerability. From a grappling perspective, especially when on the floor, a skilled person can make it very difficult to get to the eyes. So useful for self-protection, but not the skilled fighters' Achilles heel that eye gouges are often claimed to be. And number seven groin attacks of any kind you know okay they hurt Uh, they can certainly drop people and make them feel sick and even put them into a state of shock we see pro fights interrupted by accidental groin shots all the time one disadvantage is the fact that the resulting pain can sometimes be delayed a good kick to the groin is immediately painful but sometimes that pain is fight throughable however it tends to increase after the fact so it's not always incapacitation, and even when it is, it's not guaranteed to be instant. Definitely effective and accessible, though. Um, but once again, a good grappler will be able to position themselves so that the groin can't be attacked when they're on the floor. Very effective for self-protection, but still not MMA kryptonite. You know, Number eight, we've got small joint manipulation. So these can be useful if a grip on the fingers can be gained, which you know isn't always easy. But small joint manipulation can help break grips and cause pain, but they don't incapacitate. And that limits the degree of effectiveness they can have. You know, In training, I once had my thumb broken, cleaning too, lengthways along one of the bones. And I did that during some all-inspiring, and I carried on just fine. It was only after the round that the throbbing and the pain and general disfigurement became clear. So they're definitely not a fight-ender. Having a finger snap backwards can be painful and it can take time to heal. In my case, my hand was in a cast for months. And no one wants pro fighters unable to train, fight and make money, so that's probably primarily why this rule exists, as opposed to huge safety considerations. After all, a full power punch to the head is way more effective and far more dangerous than bending a finger backwards. Uh, Number nine, strikes to the spine or the back of the head. So this is another restriction based on the weaknesses of the human anatomy. Damage to these areas is obviously very severe, but they're nevertheless, you know, it spine's pretty robust, and they have to be hit with a reasonable degree of force to cause damage like that. It's unlikely that a small, untrained person will be able to generate the required force to do damage there, unlike the eyes or groin, which are far more sensitive. I can understand why we don't want trained athletes striking each other on the spine, but it's probably not sufficiently vulnerable to be a prime target for the less highly trained. Um, heel kicks to the kidneys, number 10. And as we discussed before, this is you know opening the guard while on the floor and kicking down on the opponent's kidneys from underneath. It's obviously a safety thing, but it's not like it's a guaranteed weakener or winner. Um, it's hard to get much power, and I can't see it being decisive in any form in self-protection. A trained fighter may even be able to take advantage of the opening of the guard that results. So We can put that to one side, I think. And number 11, throat strikes of any kind, including, without limitation, grabbing the trachea. So that's banned, you know, and grabbing and striking the throat can be highly effective. I and mean, The area is very vulnerable. There's you know, a sometimes joke, there's no machine in the gym to give you a stronger throat. It's weak on all folks, irrespective of size and strength. A highly trained fighter will probably be able to defend strikes this area, just as they can stop other highly trained people landed punched to the jaw, which is only a few inches higher. You know, they're also used to protecting the necks from legal grips, chokes, and strangles, too. Therefore, the illegal ones will not be radically different. So, once again, this is unlikely to be pivotal if one was stupid enough to get involved in a consensual no rules fight with a highly trained athlete. It can be a useful area to aim for in criminal violence, though, especially when the assailant is much larger. A light strike to the jaw is unlikely to do anything. However, a light strike to the throat can definitely have an effect. So number 12, which is uh, a few things listed, it's got clawing, pinching, twisting the flesh or grabbing the clavicle. So They're all under, you know, 12th one of our list. So nipping and twisting can be of minor value. However, the pain is a long way from decisive and with the effect of adrenaline and maybe even alcohol or drugs, the pain will be reduced yet further to being a practical irrelevance. So I don't think this is significant when talking about our theoretical no-rules fight or self-protection. Scratching or clawing has a role though, aside from creating space, chaos and letting the potential assailant know that you intend to fight back ferociously, it can also help gather DNA and mark the criminal, so that can help with prosecution afterwards. Once again though, all of this is still far less effective than perfectly legal methods. So the next three are all closely related, we've got kicking the head of a grounded opponent, kneeing the head of a grounded opponent or stomping on a grounded fighter. Now an obvious safety issue because fatalities could easily result. You know, it may be interesting to note as well that kicking a grounded opponent, which was called purring, was perfectly legal in boxing until Jack Broughton introduced his rules in 1741. So Jack Broughton fought a guy called George Stevenson earlier that year in a bout that lasted 40 minutes or so and was considered brutal even by the standards of the day. The bout ended when Jack Broughton landed a punch just above George Stevenson's heart, which dropped and killed him. It was this tragic event that motivated Jack Broughton to put forth a set of rules uh, to so that similar tragedies could be avoided. Anyway, you know, back on point, kicking a down person as banned by the rules will ultimately do massive damage but to be able to do that the enemy needs to be down and you need to be up. In self-protection some kind of finishing blow to ensure the down person does not just get straight back up and carry on can be appropriate. However if the criminal fell because they were unconscious or completely discombobulated then you may find yourself on the wrong side of the law if the stamp was considered to be an act of vengeance. Personally, I like stamping the legs. Driving the heel of the foot down into the thigh or calf uh, can make getting back up difficult, and it can also remove the ability to effectively give chase. These band finishing methods are not applicable unless you've secured a use advantage anyway, i.e. they are already down and you're still up. So there's certainly not any kind of equaliser that the less skilled and less able can make use of. And that's same for the final one as well. Pile drivers, yeah, get the flipping a guy upside down and dropping him onto the top of his head would do severe damage. But how easy is it to do that? You know, it's really difficult to be able to pull that off. So it's it's not like that. You know, this is some super easy thing they've banned to you know to prevent kind of injury. If you can pick a guy up upside down, you know, you've 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 no nothing to fear from that person. So again, I don't think that uh, for our purposes, again, these pile drivers don't represent some kind of super technique. I mean, so where does that leave us, you know? Of of the methods banned on safety grounds, most are not devastating finishes and are indeed probably less effective than many legal methods. Biting, eye gouging, attacks to the throat and attacks to the groin are all we're really left with. One thing we should be able to put to bed right now is the idea that rules make highly trained full contact fighters instantly ineffective in a no rules environment. That's a total myth. And as we've discussed before, that doesn't mean that full-contact sports fighting is the ultimate self-defence solution. Context remains king. MMA does not cover or emphasise personal safety habits, verbal de-escalation, home security, mobile security, the law, weapons, multiple enemies, fighting to flee, etc, etc. It's also only really an option for the young and the healthy. We also need to remember that it's a method of fighting and generally criminals don't seek fights, they seek victims. More on that in the Think Like a Criminal podcast. You know, The dynamic of criminal violence is also very different and so not everything transfers across. But all of that said, one thing we can say is that, taken alone, the banned methods are not the issue. They are not some dark magic that will enable the dirty fighter to dispatch any MMA co- competitor with ease. We also need to remember that we need attributes to deliver our techniques. So this can give rise to what I call the rules paradox. So the rules paradox is as follows, right? In sports martial arts and in training generally, we omit certain techniques because they are deemed too dangerous. At first glance, this would suggest that omission of dangerous techniques makes a martial art less effective. However, the omission of those techniques permits live practice in a way that is safe and socially acceptable. This live practice develops attributes that ensure the less dangerous techniques that remain can be effectively applied. Therefore, removing the most dangerous techniques to allow live practice can actually make a martial artist more effective. Of course, there is a balance and a scale between the two extremes. However, I think it will be safe to say that the person who includes all band techniques but never trains live will be far less effective than the person who never practices those band techniques but who does train live. As an example, the dirty fighter who does not train live will struggle to land their throat strike in the chaos of conflict because they lack the confidence, timing, distancing, accuracy, etc. that only live practice can develop. By way of contrast, the clean fighter who does train live will be far more able to land his simple right cross to the jaw. Martial artists can get more effective, not less effective, when dangerous techniques are removed from practice because this permits a safe and socially acceptable form of vigorous live training. That said, from a self-protection perspective, I feel we still need to include the banned methods in our live practice if we are to as realistically as possible recreate the environment we're training for. Life practice has always been a vital part of my approach to karate and to bunkai, and I'm a great believer in including band techniques in a safe way through substitution. For example, grab the belt knot as a replacement for grabbing the groin, touch just above the eyebrows as a substitute for eye attacks, and so on. We should also include locks, strikes, throws, escaping, multiple enemies, weapons, dialogue, protecting others, and so on. Now, I mean, this was a controversial idea when I shared my thinking in my first book 16 years ago because people were still conditioned to think there was one type of karate sparring, you know, it was competition sparring, and that kata techniques were too dangerous to be used in sparring. It's much more common now though with kata-based sparring being safely and productively practiced in many dojos around the world. I'm sure many listening to this will have similar ways of ensuring practice can be live, safe and as realistic as practicable. Now, one of the less effective arguments made against banned techniques is that such methods will just make them mad. You know, so don't don't poke him in the eye, you'll just make him mad, you know, that kind of thing. You know, I've heard that a lot, and I don't buy into this at all because the legal methods, such as getting punched in the face, can make people pretty mad too. You know, so I don't buy this, don't bite him or it'll make him mad line of thinking, and I've heard it a lot from a lot of sources. Now, that may be true of a consensual fight, i.e., you cheat during a fight you have agreed to. You know, so you've agreed to a fight, and you know, let's say a guy swings his leg over to get Jujigitami, the, like, the crosslock, and you bite him on the back of the calf. Now, that's cheating, and it's painful, and he might get mad with you. So in a consensual fight, I can see how that could happen, which is where I suspect the thinking comes from. You know, it's a failure to recognize shifting context again, but it's very unlikely to be true in a self-protection situation. At the point where it's got physical, the criminal is committed to violence and telling people, don't poke him in the eyes because you'll make him mad is terrible advice. The person is already committed to harming you. Being nice is not going to change that. If someone is kneeling on top of you, raining down punches, then it's way too late to try any form of negotiation or reasoning. He's already doing it. He's already mad. We don't need to worry about making him mad. He is already mad, and that's why he wants to smash your face in. That ship has sailed. So telling people, you know, don't make him mad, etc., that will also take off the table some of the simplest methods available to unskilled people. So as we've discussed, these methods are not a magic bullet, but they are simple to apply with a minimum of training, so they do have a role to play when teaching pure self-protection as opposed to you know, teaching martial arts with a self-protection component. So while a martial artist will train for decades to hone techniques, your typical self-protection student won't want to commit that amount of time to mastering the physical side of it. So simple, low-skill methods are still something that they can use to fight back as effectively as possible, given their level of skills and their level of time investment. I mean, studies also tell us that people who fight back deal with the psychological aftermath better as well. So we should encourage them to fight with the tools they have available. Bites, gouges, clawing, etc. Not to be inactive because that will make them mad. I mean, that's just it's terrible advice. Um, now, would anybody tell their daughter if, that if someone was going to rape her, that she should be primarily concerned about not making the attacker mad? You know, I don't think anyone would. The criminal is already committed to harming her. So she should abandon all notions of being ladylike and fight and fair. She should claw, scratch, bite gouge scream do anything she can to get herself free and you know if you would give that advice to a family member you should give that advice to anybody practically and psychologically this is the wisest course of action the criminal wants a victim so we shouldn't give him a victim we should give him the fight he doesn't want now as an important side note I do accept and fully understand that some people do decide not to fight back and I'm not saying they're wrong for doing so or that somehow makes them complicit or at fault The victim always has my full sympathy and to my mind the criminal is always the one at fault. People need to make their own decisions and it's not helpful to criticise or condemn victims of attacks for their actions. What we can say is that fighting back generally does mean less trauma during and after and hence as self-protection instructors that is the course of action we should encourage in the first instance while never judging and being wholly sympathetic to those who choose to do otherwise. Um, anyway, so the, these simple methods can empower the less skilled and are workable with a minimum of training. No one needs to endlessly drill biting to get the technique just right. Uh, we just need to be mindful of the opportunity to do so. However, things can change as the context changes, you know, the two sides of this. So, you know, is, as so often suggested, dirty fighting some kind of skilled fight a kryptonite? You know, obviously it's not. Skilled legal techniques are far more damaging than unskilled illegal techniques. So the second point, does it therefore follow that because dirty fighting will be ineffective against a skilled fighter, that the role of such methods should be downplayed when being used by a civilian in the context of criminal violence? And I'd say it doesn't. It takes a lot of time to develop a reasonable cross. People can bite with no training. Therefore, when we are giving advice to everyday people, their biting will be more applicable and effective than techniques they have never practised enough in order to hone them to a workable level. I'll say, the criminal wants a victim, not a fight. So give them a fight with the available methods. Fighting dirty can be simultaneously an irrelevance when fighting a skilled fighter, and still be very useful when helping everyday unskilled people do all they can to fend off criminal violence. They're not related or mutually exclusive. Despite being portrayed as such. You know, if we take as an example, a fifteen year old small, untrained female will not be able to fend off a rapist with crosses, elbows and roundhouse kicks. For the skilled fighter these are bread and butter basics, but not for her. However she can bite, she can scratch, she can gouge. Most criminals are not MMA champions. So while these methods won't work against MMA champions in a fight, they can work against criminals. The rapist wants to control and dominate, so fighting back with all you have denies that. And and even if the worst should happen, studies are clear that those who fight back are better able to process the trauma of the attack. So we need to encourage the unskilled to fight back with the skills they have. It's not a good idea to encourage them to be passive or recommend that they try to use skills they don't have. I mean, it's always a difficult one to discuss because fighting dirty is fundamentally defined by the structure of consensual fights. It's therefore hard to extricate those methods and move them baggage free from that context to the context of criminal violence. It can all get a bit tangled. It gets simpler when we discuss the methods themselves. You know, so for example, you know, biting will be easily stopped by a skilled fighter. And they will put themselves in a position where you can't bite but they can still cause you lots of damage. That's one context. But biting hard and aggressively on the cheek can be a good way for an unskilled person to cause a much stronger potential rapist to loosen their embrace. You know, they have to move to stop the bite. And to deny them the dominance that they're seeking, well that's context too. Context as always determines all. So it's not that like your know, band techniques are you know, super effective or absolutely pointless. It depends on the context. So let's see what we can draw from all this. Uh, number one. Banned methods are not some hyper-effective set of deadly techniques. In most cases, they are less effective overall than their legal counterparts, assuming that the person has competence in those techniques. So, point two. Banned techniques can still be a useful part of the mix, but they are not an antidote to all combat-based ills. Number three. A person skilled in full contact sparring methods will easily defeat someone who is relying on band techniques to make the definitive difference. This is the rules paradox. The live practice that safety rules can help engender will develop attributes far more effective than the band methods themselves. Number 4. While these band methods are unlikely to make a big difference against a skilled fighter, it would be a mistake to undervalue them as they can often be better options for the rank and file because they are simpler and easy to apply in self-protection. It also needs remembered that the nature of a consensual fight and the nature of criminal violence are very different. Number five. These ban techniques can also be used against you. So if you're self-protection focused, safe substitutions for them need to be included in practice so you can learn to defend against them. And number six. The idea that using banned techniques will somehow make the attacker mad and therefore they should be avoided can be shown to be false by even the most cursory examination. How is it that banned techniques make people madder than legal ones? You know, I mean, is anyone ever—is this ever going to happen? You know, oh, oh, you've just punched me in the face and I found that positively delightful because it's legal in sporting martial arts. Oh, now hang on, no, you've just scratched me and that really is beyond the pale. You know, it's BS. Also, when people are already physical, they're already intent on harming you. You know that again, it's it's crossed that point. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the discussion. As always, I hope that this has given you something to think about. Above all, I hope that you feel I've made a good case against the supposed hyper effectiveness of all banned methods, especially when employed against a, a trained fighter. You can see what is banned is, is generally less effective than what isn't. And anyway, but in, while making this case, I've also hope I've made clear that these methods have value when being used by the largely unskilled in criminal violence. We shouldn't make the assumption that all criminals are MMA fighters, because you know, they're not. You know, so you know, just because I might not be able to poke a guy in the eye during a Brazilian jiu-jitsu-style roll on the floor, you because know, obviously they will tie my arms up and everything else, doesn't mean that we shouldn't tell untrained people that you know, if you've got a rapist on top of you, you poke him in the eye. You know, the are two entirely different contexts where things can shift. A context and nuance would seem to be the watchwords of this podcast, I think. Well, thank you very much for listening to that. Uh, if you could, again, like I said at the start, if you could get me your list of your top 10, top 1, 2, 3, 4, whatever it is, up to 10 uh, podcasts, email to me at ian at com, so you can have an input to the uh, 10th anniversary of the podcast, I'd really appreciate you doing that. And I'd also just like to uh, thank everyone for their attendance at the recent seminars, uh, they've been really good fun recently, um, great attendances, uh, really enthusiastic people, uh, solidly booked again for the Whole of this year, uh, next year is really starting to get solidly booked as well. So uh, it, it's great. There's just so much interest in, in in what we're you know we're trying to do. So I always say it's always good to get out there. and spend time with the tribe as well you know people who kind of share my passions and enthusiasm so you know thanks to y'all it's been really good and i look forward to seeing the rest of you soon as the as the year moves on so yeah okay i'll speak to you soon thanks again for listening in i promise i'll do my best to be uh, more on time with next month's podcast so hopefully you won't have to wait another whatever it's been 10 weeks or something we'll try and get it down to you know four or five so um uh, yeah i hope you enjoyed this one i'll be back with more soon thank you so much for listening thanks for your support Uh, Take care and speak to you soon. All the best. Bye-bye now.